0: Fraudsters are are looking at you know help somebody else make a difference. That behavioral confirmation, what you do is important to somebody else. Yes. Uh, help your family by getting rich. The lottery scams, the sweepstakes mm-hmm. scams, mm-hmm. or fear. You know, IRS is coming to get you, or your grandson is arrested in Acapulco, or or what have you. Yeah. But also those mechanisms of exploitation that we've started to touch on. You just touched on one: abuse of trust. That's so much at the heart of so much of this exploitation and we talked about coercion or undue influence the third one is really financial entitlement and this is really sad because you know let's say i'm well i am a middle aged adult and i was i was my dad's caregiver but let's say i all of a sudden i say well you know i have to take dad to the doctor um and he should really drive around in a nice car of course you know, 99% of the time, I'll drive around, and so I'm going to buy myself a BMW with my dad's money, and I start to feel entitled to that. I don't think of that as theft or misuse of funds, and that's a real problem because uh, what we have noticed is that money is quite the taboo topic among generations older. People don't talk with their younger family members about their finances, where it's kept, how they protect it, and so forth.
1: I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a clinical geropsychologist, which means that I'm a psychologist who specializes with older adults and families. And this is the Psychology of Aging podcast, your go-to resource for mental health and aging. Welcome to the 67th episode of the Psychology of Aging podcast. This episode is on Preventing Elder Financial Abuse and Exploitation with Dr. Peter Lichtenberg. This is the third of a four-part series on elder abuse and exploitation. In the first of this series, I shared some basic statistics about elder abuse and where you can report elder abuse. And then I interviewed, in the next episode, Kathy Schottenstein, Patup, who is the granddaughter of Beverly Schottenstein, who was financially exploited by her grandsons and JP. Morgan Bank, and was awarded 19 million dollars upon winning her lawsuit. And today, Dr. Peter Lichtenberg is on the podcast sharing about how to prevent financial exploitation and abuse. And next week, I interview Paige Ulry, who is the senior deputy prosecutor for King County in Seattle. And her sole specialty is elder abuse. In today's interview, Dr. Lichtenberg shares examples of elder financial exploitation. So he shares his own stories and experiences of working with older adults and their families who have been financially exploited. And this is an effort to raise awareness about what financial abuse looks like so we know how to help and prevent it. He'll also share what increases the risk for financial vulnerability, lots of resources to help older adults, caregivers, and professionals to prevent elder financial exploitation, and to recover from identity theft. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Peter Lichtenberg. Dr. Peter Lichtenberg is the director of the Institute of Gerontology in the Merrill Palmer Skillman Institute and a distinguished professor of psychology at Wayne State in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Lichtenberg was one of the first board-certified clinical geropsychologists in the nation. He devotes his clinical and research efforts to better understand the intersection between cognitive impairment, financial capacity, and financial exploitation. Across the past decade, he has created several tools to help assess financial vulnerability and financial decision-making, and partnered with the state of Michigan to have his tools implemented by Adult Protective Services. Dr. Lichtenberg is the recipient of several major professional awards, and he has authored seven books and over 190 scientific articles in geropsychology. His new website, OlderAdultNestegg.com helps assess financial decision-making and determine financial vulnerabilities for older adults. It provides training, tools, and resources for professionals, caregivers, and older adults themselves. I cannot think of a better person to help us prevent elder financial abuse and exploitation. In this interview, we talk about, or Dr. Lichtenberg talks about, the family as a system and caregiving occurring in the context of a system and relationships. And what's so wonderful about his resource, the olderadultnest egg.com, is that he really acknowledges and offers resources for each person in that system the older adult, the family, and even the professionals who are working with the older adult and the family. I'm delighted to be interviewing Dr. Lichtenberg, and I hope that you will check out the show notes page for all of the resources. All right, let's jump into the interview. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today on the Psychology of Aging podcast. I am delighted that you're here to enlighten us about a really tough topic, which is about financial exploitation and vulnerability and how to help families navigate and professionals navigate these challenging waters. So thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Regina. and Thank you for covering this important topic.
1: Yeah, your resource, um, and which we'll talk about today in this interview, was recently um, mentioned in a in a Double AARP article about a must-have resource for protecting your, yourself against financial exploitation. And so, congratulations! I'm so Thank delighted.
0: You we but, were delighted to to get the call from them and ask if it was okay to to post us and uh, yes indeed our our services and our resources of course are national and international
1: international too yeah whoa that's impressive well, can you share a little bit of how did you get interested in working with older adults and around finances? What, what's the backstory of that?
0: Sure. So, I've had a 35 year career in geropsychology and geriatric neuropsychology, done a lot of work in dementia and dementia assessments, and, and a lot of work even earlier in my career and, and throughout in capacity assessments. So, let me just describe one case I got involved with with the legal system about an 87-year-old woman who had passed away. She had been noted to have uh, early Alzheimer's disease. She lived alone with her dog in a very cohesive neighborhood, a lot of dear friends and so forth. One of her former neighbors who had moved away swooped back in, made a deal with this woman. Hey, I'll take care of you. And if you leave me your house... I'll also take care of your dog after you died. Well, A, she never took care of the woman. B, uh, she had the dog put to sleep after the woman died. And C, uh, she ended up being the sole uh, uh, recipient of the woman's, in her will, and her children, this uh, former neighbor's children, end up living in the house that the older woman had. It was a horrible case. And that's just one of many that I've been involved in. And, you know, when you do capacity assessments, all of a sudden you realize with the dark side of this is financial exploitation.
1: If you were to break this case down then, so a neighbor moves away, comes back, says, I'll care for you. Where might you have considered or recommended intervening? So that?
0: Yeah, so this is really tough case because it, the woman had early dementia. So she can come across as having it together. The neighbors kind of that were close to her tried to talk to her and uh, she didn't believe them. And what happened, this is kind of a classic undue influence case, is that uh, the evil neighbor, former neighbor, really poisoned the relationships that the older woman had with others in the neighborhood and really got that paranoia uh, stoked. This would be a very difficult case to intervene in. Um, I can see the APS worker coming out, adult protective service and investigating if somebody made a complaint and finding the woman to say, Oh, well, you know, my, my former neighbor, you know, we were close and now she's taking care of me and, and so forth. And sometimes it's really not until things unfold quite a bit that you really see how pernicious and evil this really is.
1: Yeah. The benefit of hindsight. I was, Wanting to back up for a second, can you define undue influence?
0: Sure, sure. It's essentially the overthrow of free will. So uh, I'm going to substitute your will for mine. And how do I do that? Well, I've really got to develop a confidential relationship with you. And in most cases, you really have to have some kind of susceptibility. I mean, you know, extreme cases, if you're kidnapped or something, you can have that. But but in most cases with dementia, that's the susceptibility, this confidential relationship. And then I start to isolate you, poison other relationships. You become completely dependent on me. This power differential. And then the next thing you know, I'm pulling the strings. I'm getting the attorney. I'm calling the attorney, yeah. bring them to you. Oh, yeah, we want to change this uh, deed to the house and change the will. And that's really classic undue influence oh. and it's it's one extreme form of financial exploitation um, there are many others
1: yeah so that is very extreme and then I was thinking oh what a what a painful thing for the neighbors who tried to intervene but had no legal authority to do anything about it and then you said even if APS which is adult protective services got involved it they might be able to fool them. The 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 bad actor might be able to fool them.
0: One other case, I mean, came from the same kind of uh, probate work. Uh, and this is more along the lines of what people think of when they think of financial exploitation. This uh, divorced older gentleman who's retired, high, high need for status, big ego, uh, get, was getting kind of isolated And uh, fell into this romance inheritance scam. So it was a a classic romance scam, except with a really interesting twist. The inheritance was, well, I am a woman, and I want to marry you, not only because I love you, in the romance scam, but also because I can't inherit my $15 million in my culture unless I'm a married woman. And um, he actually ended up sending eight hundred thousand dollars across two months um, to uh, to a nefarious individual that didn't really exist. I mean, so he sent it off, and um, you know, I got involved in this case, and eventually it became a guardianship case. He uh, still believed that he was going to have a payoff with this, even though the FBI had sat down with him and the bank president. This is one of those cases where really you know they had done such a good job of influencing him and and tapping into that need for status and visibility and being kind of an important person that they totally overtook him.
1: I want to just think about the desire to for love and the longing for that intimate connection and how. It, oh, how easily exploited that piece of that relationship was
0: exactly that's exactly heartbreaking. yes and and this happens a lot, you know more even in person for lesser sums, but this case, of course, was so um, somewhat unique in how much money left, how quickly,
1: yeah, yeah, so. Now, I know that you all have done at your and at Wayne State and the department that you work in have done research on. Um, you talked about that first case, early memory loss and financial decision making and the risk for financial exploitation. Can you talk a bit about the research and the and findings sure. there?
0: Sure. So you know, I did one of the first national studies on fraud. It just so happened that the question I wanted in there got put into this. Uh, part of the sub study of the health and retirement survey. And so I knew about the data. And so we did this study. We found out that psychological vulnerability was a big predictor of a fraud. And I started to think, you know, how would you, and, and, in and in these cases too, that I assess people in real time, how, do, how would you assess their financial decision making? Because that's really what it comes down to. Do they have those decisional abilities? Is that intact to make an informed decision. We're all allowed to make bad decisions, but it has to be informed. And there were no instruments out there. So we decided we were going to try with help from numerous colleagues uh, to create new financial decision-making measure, one that was person-centered and one that really looked not only at kind of the informed decision-making factors of uh, choice and understanding, appreciation, but also the contextual factors of financial strain or confidence, psychological vulnerability, and uh, susceptibility factors. As we, as we did that, we started to then, um, we, had, we created a long scale, a shorter scale for all kinds of social service professionals, and an informant scale for families. And we started to say, well, does this really show any intersection with financial exploitation? And sure enough, especially in cases where there's early memory loss, uh, the intersection between faulty decision-making and exploitation was clear. We published quite a bit on this.
1: And especially, and then fill us in on that early memory loss piece, then that's what creates that vulnerable, that psychological vulnerability. Is that what you're saying? No,
0: you know, it, it actually can be separate from that. And the health and retirement study, interestingly enough, uh, that's a pretty healthy cognitive sample. And so uh, without cognitive deficits, uh, the psychological vulnerability really held out. And that's why we knew context was so important, can overwhelm sometimes whether uh, somebody, even, even if their intellectual abilities are intact and, and not, it, that context can really determine what they do. But uh, I think we should recognize, and I think in, in uh, financial exploitation, we probably need to come up with a better taxonomy. We talk about have people been defrauded or not, They've been exploited or not, but I think we need you know, sort of simple exploitation, or I don't even know what the word is it's like a falling you know, you have falls and you have injurious falls. I think we need that kind of taxonomy and financial exploitation because people with memory loss are much more likely to have repeated episodes of Mm -hmm. being exploited, and I think that's really where, where they become quite vulnerable a lot of times. Uh, memory or executive functioning deficits, like the gentleman with the romance inheritance scams, he had some clear executive functioning deficits, probably vascular dementia early on. And um, that, you know, just that concreteness, even though he seemed in so many other ways able to, you know, talk about why he was doing this and love this, that concreteness didn't allow him to really assess the risks, the consequent potential consequences, and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. I was remembering a case I had where I was working with an individual who was in his 90s, cognitively intact, no dementia process happening, but um, had medical vulnerabilities and hearing, had cochlear a, a double cochlear implants and um, and was exploited by a home health aide actually, who um, revealed some of her own vulnerable like financial concerns in her life and you know would ask him for support and his role in the family was as a provider and he was more and more alone and and I, and I part of it is it felt so good to give, yeah. you know, and to be able to contribute for him. It yeah. felt so good to be able to contribute to somebody who was in need. And I think if, if she had asked and not exploited him, he might've even done it. And, and it, it turned out that it was just exploited because she was lying about all these, there was a house fire and she lost everything. I mean, she, she was lying about all these traumatic events in her life that were not true. And, and I think it really appealed to his need to continue to offer something to the world and to people.
0: You know, it's 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 interesting you say that. I mean, fraudsters are are looking at, you know, help somebody else make a difference, that behavioral confirmation, what you do is important to somebody else. Yeah. Uh help your family by getting rich, the lottery scams, the sweepstakes scams, mm-hmm. or fear, you know, IRS is coming to get you or your grandson is arrested in Acapulco or, or what have you. Yeah. But also those mechanisms of exploitation that we've started to touch on, you just touched on one, abuse of trust. That's so much at the heart of so much of this exploitation. And we talked about coercion or undue influence. The third one is really financial entitlement. And this is really sad because, you know, let's say I'm, well, I am a middle-aged adult and I I was my dad's caregiver but let's say i all of a sudden i say well you know i have to take dad to the doctor um and he should really drive around in a nice car of course you know 99% of the time i'll drive around and so i'm going to buy myself a, a bmw with my dad's money and i start to feel entitled to that i don't think of that as theft or misuse of funds and that's a real problem because uh what we have noticed is that money is quite the taboo topic among Generations older people don't talk with their younger family members about their finances, where it's kept, how they protect it and so forth.
1: What are the barriers to that? What keeps people from talking about it?
0: Uh, one thing is people fear that if they uh, let their kids know they have money, that, that they'll feel more entitled to it. Another thing is it's, it's an interesting societal kind of thing in terms of, uh, you know, generations don't speak about money and there's thick boundaries about that. And it has to do with autonomy, just as you were saying about this older individual, the provider. You know, once I you know reveal these things, I'm not that autonomous uh, person. And yet, I think we all have to have a plan as we get older because we never know what's going to happen in terms of how do we protect our finances.
1: Right, right. So is your recommendation then that families talk about it or what do you think?
0: Yeah, my recommendation. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, my recommendation is you know, it's going to be different for different uh, individuals, but is that they are talking with somebody about it. So if it's yeah. their financial professional, they're talking to them, but they're making a plan that's going to include somebody who is not strictly professional, somebody else who might be the one that someone turns to uh, in case of uh, I I come into my uh, planner's office or accountant's office, he notices, boy, Peter's not remembering things like he used to. Who am I going to contact? Right. That kind of a plan. And also, um, what kinds of protections? You know, Banks offer a lot of good protections now. You can't wire more than X amount, or there's warning flags that go up on, on certain kinds of withdrawals, you know, so how do you, how are you going to deal with that too?
1: Right, right. I like this idea that there's not a one size fits all recommendation. It's different for every family, every relationship. The history of relationships is important too. have there been betrayals and other sorts of mistrust in the past or um, mismanagement of money in the past, even if there are no betrayals so that might all influence what, how people decide to talk about money or not. And then, but not to keep silent, to find a trusted individual that can help you make some of these planning decisions. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Correct. Absolutely. And, and um, because, because without it, you know, a lot of times some of these awful cases that I see, you know, it's like the prodigal son, the, the person who has a, in the past misused funds and was estranged from now mom and dad are getting more frail and in they swoop. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't remember all those things that they did. And, but at their heart, they're manipulating and trying to gain control. So you got to have some plans in place to make sure that your wishes are going to be, to be really upheld.
1: Right. So, these are, in my mind, extreme, but then there are these like subtleties that I see happening where I wonder and and I don't think we'll have clear answers about these cases that sort of skirt the line of exploitation or not, or it's like this ambiguous place where well, there's a caregiver and and a strong family history and relationship and they're pretty enmeshed maybe and maybe the the person is taking a little more than they would or maybe the older adult is giving to a grandchild when you know because of that sort of desire to contribute but then the the caregiver says well no we really can't afford that we need to keep your money for this other caregiving need but right. then the older adult wants to give and give and give in a in a direction that might not be, you know, helpful to the older adult, those cases are always a little bit harder for me as a clinician where I think, gosh, you know, some of this, is this just a bad decision and we're entitled to making bad decisions from time to time, or is this like we need to help so What would you say in these sort of ambiguous cases?
0: Oh, thanks for bringing this up. It's a great, great and important topic. And, and one, of the, one of the things that we, we've created some training on is how do you manage somebody else's money? And I think it's important to follow those kinds of rules. And what happens inside of following those rules can be quite variable. But uh, you talked about enmeshment. You really can't commingle funds. I mean, this is really important. You really have to document expenditures uh, that have come out of uh, the older person's accounts. You really have to think of it like if I had to go to court and show the judge, you know, what did I do? Um, to care for mom or dad. Uh, this is what I spent on. And then um, when it comes to these kinds of gifts, what's allowable? Well, you got to kind of be probably a little bit upfront with others in your family about it. Mom wants to do this. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Is there, you know, should we sit down with her? Should we do some family mediation about this? W- what should we do? But um secrecy is, is really what gets people into trouble and uh, also uh, not having some clear kind of boundaries between the finances and not keeping a chart of accounts on, on what they do. And that's where, you know, my brothers would say, oh, my gosh, you know, Pete's just really going around and exploiting dad, you know, even though my dad wanted to, you know, send my daughter to a camp or something. And of course, yes. that could be very genuine, you know, and my dad might have had the money to do that. So I have to be upfront about that in some ways.
1: Right, right.
0: You're managing a system when you're a caregiver. You're not just managing the older person. And it is everybody's business because it they will become interested parties. <laughs> so you might as well do that up front.
1: Oof. You know, As you were saying that, I was just thinking uh, the older adult in that scenario must feel like a gem getting chiseled away at. I mean, just this like chisel, chisel, chisel. All these people want a piece of me talking about me as if I'm not here. I mean, this is where I think it really does help to have some guidance and guidelines. And I know you all offer some of that. And I I want to talk about that in a minute, but... uh, I'm just thinking about the older adult in this scenario. Yes, I 100% agree. The caregiver is managing a system, and contain and and trying to offer some containment to that, and has I'm going to say her because the majority of caregivers are women, um, and has her own interest in that system and role in that system too. Oof, and and so how do you? I know that autonomy is of paramount importance to the older adult. And so how do you maintain that in the midst of diminished capacity?
0: That's why we actually created our scale. It was to promote autonomy where possible. And and it really has been the case that we've used our decision-making scale to show intact abilities, even in the light of cognitive decline or dementia. For example, uh, in one case, a woman wanted to give her house to her son and his family. Uh, a, she wanted to, She was an assisted living. She wanted to be able to go visit and, and be in her room. A. Uh, B. her other son had done incredibly well in life. And, and this son had spent so much time caring for her and sacrificed some things. And she just felt it was fair. And, and I Thought that was perfectly appropriate. And she was able to express her choice, express an understanding and an appreciation of it. And so um, that is crucial. The older person is at the center. And when they have, even if they have some diminished abilities in other realms, they still may have this intact decision making. Uh, but the thing is, you know, because of the caregiving situation the adult child has to understand they're now in a dual role they're a child they're a caregiver they're you know those are that's a dual role and that's why I say they have to manage the system because it's all going to come back to them eventually yeah. and so the best thing for them to do would be to say to their older parent I'd like I'd like you to talk to you know, brothers and sisters about your plans and why you want to do this. That's the best thing. It's the secrecy that gets people into trouble and really not the communication.
1: Peter, can you talk about the survey? Are you talking, I know on your site you have a few different surveys. There's, there's one around financial vulnerability for the older adult, and then there are different um, surveys and resources for professionals. Which survey were you talking about just then?
0: So, Just then I was talking about our financial decision-making scale for professionals. So we created these three scales. That's where we started. And then we asked the question, Regina, out of our long scale, it's like 60-some items, not even on our website. We just use it for research. We said, how much does context matter? Like, Take away these intellectual cognitive things. How much just does context? Vulnerability, generally, matter. And we found, oh my goodness, financial vulnerability um, predicted kind of group membership, those who we had confirmed exploitation cases, those that weren't, uh, over 80% accuracy. And these 17 items held together as a scale, and they cover things like... um, financial awareness, like strain and expenditures versus income and confidence. They also cover things like psychological vulnerability. How often do you wish you had someone to talk to about your finances, that loneliness around finances or anxiety or depression or or memory loss interfering with your finances? And the third factor that kind of touched in on the scale is relationship strain. Has a relationship with a family member become strained as you've gotten older due to finances? And, you know, do you think someone wants to take your money? You know, how, are you worried about your financial freedom? These, this survey is self report. And we said, you know what? We cross validated it. My doctoral student will present that next week. And we said, we need to get this out there for people to use. So we create an older adult page on our website. And this survey, 17 items, will give you a risk score. And this risk score corresponds to kind of, are you at average risk or high risk or low risk for exploitation? And why? Because these factors really do tend to create that susceptibility, even in cognitively intact individuals.
1: So, and this is called the Financial Vulnerability Scale on for older adults on your website, and it's financial free. vulnerability
0: survey. Yeah, it's free. All of our instruments are professionals have accounts on our websites. They they get our online training and certification. Can use our um, assessment tools. Put in the score. Uh, put in the answers, and we'll provide the scoring and next steps and resources. Same that we wanted to create this for older adults themselves, so they could just create they're on they're anonymous they don't even need to create an account and they just fill out the scale and they can print it off and it and it gives them some ideas of next steps and also some resources and what's been amazing is the response to it tell me we've been up five months i think we have over a thousand surveys that have been filled out
1: wow and and um, the survey is free, and then they get resources and information. And those are all, you know, we're talking about risk and vulnerability. So just want to reassure people the resources that you send the older adult to are credible, legitimate. Tell us about that. So we know to yeah, trust, so them or very, not trust them. So we're
0: very careful. No for profit resources at all. No. Sh- We send them to uh, kind of the AARP fraud page, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, certain uh, COVID scam kind of uh, things. So it's all educational material. What can you do to protect yourself? What should you be looking out for? You know, fraud and scams change all the time, and we try to keep up a little bit with it. Not not, you can't keep up with all of it, but we try to keep up a little bit. So those kinds of resources are more better education Mm -hmm. about what's going on out there. Next steps, what we suggest sometimes is, you know, maybe somebody is um, showing some mental health problems. Hey, go get an evaluation for that. Uh, If they're feeling like I'm really desperate to talk to somebody about finances, they can talk with us, our SAFE program. We have, you know, a a social worker who's an economic advocate, financial coach.
1: What does SAFE stand for?
0: Successful Aging Through Financial Empowerment. And, uh, this particular program is based on an evidence-based program that, that, that was a national program that started at the university of Maryland, but the group that we patterned ourselves after, and we went and got trained by them and mentored by them was a group called lifespan, uh, in Rochester, New York. And it's, it really is, uh, the part that we took is the scam and identity theft, um, for older adults who've been victims of that or, Community education, of course, but talking about the victims. We'll give them one-on-one services to restore their credit, to make sure they report to the proper people, including the police, and uh, we'll do what we can to retrieve or save them money, which we uh, which we often find we can. So let me give you an example. One guy, I mean, <laughs> this is a great story. He was in his mid seventies, and he got a, a report. A, Kind of a notice from a collection agency that he owed thirty five thousand dollars. He had no idea what what's going on, and he called the Safe Program because he didn't know how to access his credit report and find out. Well, it turns out he was a victim of identity theft. Somebody charged their student loans to uh, his him. He'd never gone to college, but he was you know he's very depressed, very anxious. Of course, you know, terrifying. He also couldn't figure his way through this. He wasn't, he was, he he didn't have dementia, but he had some cognitive changes, normal with aging that are, were just impeding him. So Latoya got the whole thing, uh, disputed it and they accepted the dispute. It went away, happily went on with his life, got married this past fall.
1: Oh my gosh. Congratulations.
0: Yeah. So that was a great example, but uh, interestingly, um, you know, we were talking about when's it, when is it fraud? When is it just confusion? And we see some pretty pretty rough uh, financial practices, car loans, mortgages, those kinds of things. Car loans especially are not as scrutinized legally. And so um, we just had a case that was uh, uh, a, a car loan that really uh, the loan was to repair the car. The car never got repaired, but the loan kept ballooning. And um, Latoya really helped to bring that down to size. So
1: Latoya is the social worker that's connected to the SAFE program. She is. Connected to your department at Wayne State.
0: Yes. She's at our Institute of Gerontology. She and I are joined at the hip on this. And we started very small and we keep expanding the program. On our website, we also have trainings for caregivers what we call family and friends and it's about how to detect dementia how to manage somebody else's money how do you look through their financial accounts to detect scams or frauds Whoa. and how to have difficult conversations
1: wow I, I mean you all are just the gift that keeps on giving without taking anything away <laughs>
0: you know you know we've been very blessed we've gotten a lot of uh, grant support and and donor support to offer these This information at no charge. I hate to say free because nothing's free, but it's at no charge to anybody that uses it because of uh, the different federal, foundation, state, and local uh, places that we've been able to get funding.
1: Wow. Now the SAFE program that you're talking about, which is around fraud and scamming, and to to work with LaToya, it sounds like she's uh, masterful at these, these issues or resolving these issues. Um, does the person have to be in Michigan to participate in the safe program?
0: No. And one of the things about the pandemic, we went virtual <laughs> and uh, we found out, Hey, this was a great idea. We can help so many more people, even in Michigan. So we were first for just five counties. Cause you don't, know, can't get around that. And now we've been helping people in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. We've been working with the prosecutor's office to help this one woman recover about $20,000. Wow. And And um, now nationally, too. And uh, so you go on our website on the older adult page, you click on the safe page, and then you can fill out a form, and we'll get back in touch with you. But one of the things about conversation, and, and I work on some of the, uh, I I do a lot of the difficult conversation coaching and so forth. So we just had somebody, a woman, uh, in Wyoming, and her mother in California, and you know her mother has these, hasn't paid her taxes in years, and has lots of other kinds of um, uh, financial expenses, and has been resistant and just been coaching the daughter a little bit on how to to talk with her mother. And then uh, when she went to visit her mother, we had a Zoom call and her mother was much more open to saying, you know, I've been in denial, but it's time to come out of it. And so I try to use a lot of motivational interviewing kinds of techniques, Regina. Mm -hmm. You know, at the core of that, of course, is that people are ambivalent about a decision. Or, or topic, and so you, you got to side with both sides of it. You have to be very, very compassionate and really understanding of the older adult's feelings, the the identity that's at stake, and uh, how they're thinking through this issue. And then you can probe. You can ask some questions. You know, that kind of are general and and start to get people to think about. Uh, you know, maybe doing something different. Mm-hmm. But so many adult children, um, they feel so responsible to protect their, their parents. They get very frightened. And we've talked about autonomy, and sometimes they just step right on it. And I'll tell you what, those older parents lock the door, they change the locks, they throw the key away, for, it's they terrific. throw the... They throw their son's address away. Uh, they, they're they very hurt. They're very angry and they feel very persecuted. So you have to be very careful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Now you mentioned conversations. So, and this important role of if you and your uh, parent, uh, older adult, loved one are struggling to engage in these conversations that it can help at times to have um, somebody to help coach the conversation along. Now, it sounds like you all offer that in your program. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we offer services for caregivers uh, that are around finances. So This could be even the caregiver's own budgeting for their own finances. We recognize that this could be very uh, difficult. Um,
1: Wait, let me stop you there. Say more about that because yeah, they want to know.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, caregivers are stressed financially, and as you were pointing out, um, sometimes you know some a lot of their assets are going into providing this care and, uh, or they're just so stretched with the sandwich generation kind of thing that they haven't really been budgeting their money and they're finding that they're losing funds and they didn't realize that excessive spending. So we'll, we'll help them with just their own budgeting.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. As well as, uh, anything to do with their, uh, their parents, uh, finances or older relatives finances as well. Or if it's a, fr- you know, it doesn't have to be family, friends taking care of a, an older relative and, and we'll provide those services too.
1: You know what I love so much about what you all are offering back to your um, statement about this is a system that you're caring for, and you all have really set up a program that is caring for this system. You're and thinking about all parties in this system, the caregiver, we don't want the caregiver to be alienated and depleted. We want the caregiver to be empowered. We don't want the older adult to be um, stamp, you know, stampeded on and their, and their dignity and their autonomy to be violated. We want that to be upheld and it can be so hard for families to and when you're in the middle of it, to try to tease it all apart, and then who to trust to help you with that? If there's already secrecy around money, and so a program like yours, which is really, you know, grounded in in evidence, right? You do a lot of research on this. You're also um, a, a psychologist that has long time experience in capacity evaluations and difficult family conversations around capacity. Capacity having to do with changes in autonomy, changes in abilities to make decisions about your your finances and the importance of these conversations on the front end. So as your capacity might change over time, you have some resources in place to, um, to honor your wishes down the road. I think these resources are so valuable what you're offering because families are like, well, where do we even go for this information? And who do we even trust? And we're worried about fraud. Are you gonna fraud? You know, are you gonna exploit us if we come and talk to you about this? And and that you're a program that's um safe and not just your safe program, but your yeah. secure program that will, right. you know. Is, is founded on the bedrock of ethics and integrity and just offering such an important service
0: thank you so much regina you know i i found that uh, caregiving was so siloed from elder abuse and let's say financial exploitation part of elder abuse um because they're just so they're in different systems and yet uh, as much help as there is for caregiving it's a lot of it is about you know how do you physically care for somebody? How do you care for your own mental health needs as well as the older persons, but there wasn't much for finances. And so that's where we thought that we had the opportunity to offer. Now on the elder abuse site, you know, a lot of, we train a lot of adult protective service workers. Many of them came from child protective services or domestic violence. They have no idea about dementia, memory loss. uh, And, um, kind of how to have these kinds of conversation with the older person too. And so we're just trying to blend that. And we thought, you know, as we do that, we need to have a public face to this too for families and, and for older, older adults themselves. So thank you. We, we appreciate it.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I appreciate all that you are doing. It really is one of the most challenging situations I help families with. And I, um, you know, I'm not a financial advisor or a financial planner. I'm good at (laughs) helping families have difficult conversations, but to have all the resources, I looked at some of the resources on your, for professionals and for families. I mean, the the resources that you have that are even outside of your programs, resources are magnificent and so helpful and credible. So thank you for all that you're doing. Okay. So tell us about your website, com
0: olderadultnestate.com. Also, I realize I have the domain name for .org and got something else that everybody always asks me, oh, do I have to pay for this because it's .com. I just thought that'd be easier for people to remember. Nobody has to pay for this. They go on our website. If you're a professional, if you're, it could be a financial planner, it could be a psychologist, could be a, a, a medical provider, an elder law attorney, uh, all of those folks physical occupational therapists, they all have accounts on our website. You click on a sign up and you create your own account. Then you can get trained on our, our scales and certified. And then you can go ahead and use them. And, and uh, once, once you're trained and certified, you can either download it as a PDF or use it online. On the older adult page, uh, there's resources, there's the SAFE program, which describes what it is, and there's a financial vulnerability survey. And on the family and friends page, there's those four trainings plus family and friends questionnaire. What that is, is a self-report, 14 items to give the caregiver a sense of how concerned from their own perspective they are about their older loved one's uh, financial abilities, both decision-making and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And then they can even take that report. To the doctors the next time they go, uh, if they're you know worried about an older person, share that with with the doctor or to an attorney or however. So those are the three uh, sets of resources that we have, and um, for each there are there is a resource page: professional resources, resources for families, resources for older adults, and it'll take you. To all kinds of different websites, none of which, none of which are selling any kind of service at all, none of which have in their, um, I mean, even if they were just giving information, their companies aren't selling yeah. a, a service that's you know directly related. And so, that that makes it a little bit easier for us. Um, the AARP, Federal Trade Commission, uh, Elder Justice website, which is which is really outstanding. And um, uh, different reports, the the Baker Fraud Report. We we take some of the resources that they share on a weekly basis and post them. So we've kept updated on what the latest COVID scams are and so forth.
1: Wow. Well, Peter, thank you so much for all you're doing to to maintain the integrity of an older adult's well being. So there's the physical health, mental health, and financial health of a family, and Um, And I really, you know, thank you for what you're doing. It's so essential. And thanks to LaToya. yeah, Even though she's not here, I feel like she's here in spirit. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for older adults and their families and professionals. I I can't wait to share this information with the professional groups I'm involved with. So thank you.
0: Such a pleasure to be with you, Regina. Thank you for having me.
1: And so anybody who's interested in these resources can go to olderadultnestegg.com. And all of the resources are free. You only need to start an account if you're a professional. And um, these other surveys that Peter was mentioning are free and easy to use. I tried, I, I started to use one myself just to see how it worked. So thank you. My pleasure. I hope you found some useful insights in this episode with Dr. Peter Lichtenberg. I also want to remind you to check out the show notes page, which is linked to wherever you're listening to this podcast. The resources will help you help family members, older adults, professionals, everyone. So check it out. All right, that's all for today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does make a difference and I'll see you next week for the final episode in this four-part elder abuse series. Bye for now.